Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about both You Hurt My Feelings and Blackberry. Join me today. He's only wasted a moderate amount of time lately shock shopping. It's Gage Eggleston. Gage, how's it going? Good, good. Thanks for having me back. And also joining me, she would never deceive her patients by not emptying her trash. It's the Rewind's resident therapist, Andrea DeWitt. Andrea, thank you for being here. Thank you for, again, having faith in me. <laughs> um, so for, first, we're going to talk today about You Hurt My Feelings, which is the newest movie from writer-director Nicole Holofcener, her her second collaboration with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, their first being 2013's Enough Said, which was a, a really great movie and one of the last on-screen uh, appearances by the late James Gandolfini. But here they decide, here Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Nicole Holofcener uh, reconnected for a different movie that's, you know, they're in her same slice of lifestyle. Julia Lee Dreyfus plays Beth. She's a novelist in New York City who's written one moderately successful memoir, trying to get another maid, but she also teaches writing. Her husband is Don, a therapist played by Tobias Menzies. And, you know, they have a seemingly, you know, nice relationship where they can, you know, and they enjoy each other's company and all that. And they seem to get along and respect each other's professions. And uh, then one day when Beth is out shopping with her sister, Sarah, played by Michaela Watkins, they stumble upon uh, Don and uh, best brother-in-law, Mark, played by Ariane Moyad, who you might know as Stewie from Succession. They are sock shopping at a sporting goods store. They come they come upon the two of them and Beth overhears Don saying she, he did not like her latest book, despite having told her otherwise. And that sends her into a bit of a spiral. And the movie kind of deals with the fallout about of that. But interestingly, a lot more stuff in addition to that. Guys, I guess where I want to start is, you know, I think this is like incredibly interesting because one that I happen to be uh, one talking to a couple and uh, one of you, uh, I gauge, I, I guess I'd say you come work in a bit of a creative field. I don't know necessarily that you're making movies that you're showing Andrea, but I'm not quite as successful as Louis Dreyfus is in this movie or as she is in real life, but uh, I'm very, very close to okay. being successful. There we go. It's just, I don't know if uh, Andrew and I have the kind of jobs where you necessarily uh, show someone the uh, your work product necessarily in the same way. So I think uh, I'm glad I have at least you here in that theory, someone that might someday work in that field. But I think it's interesting that like this movie is really fascinating and that like there's this dilemma here. Uh, and, and again, it's more than just like the, how they solved the who like who liked the book. He didn't like the book thing. What he told her the white lie. There's more to this movie than that. And I want to talk about that. But that's kind of like the central dilemma. That was the pitch for what got people in the door. How do you tell your significant other a white lie if you don't love something they did? Or how, should you just be completely honest about something like that? Should you protect someone's feelings? And it deals with all of that. And you know what? I think it's kind of interesting. I'm wondering what you thought, Andrea. I didn't necessarily think the movie gave you like a clear answer as to who was in the right. And I don't think that's a problem. What, what did you think about how the movie kind of like tackled the central conceit and kind of showed both sides of it and just like uh, laid it plain out there? Because I, 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 first of all, I don't think we can really spoil this movie necessarily. It's it's kind of unspoilable in some ways because it's just uh, it's it's just a conflict that kind of just like ends up just like resolving itself. And I think that's I guess it's a spoiler to say they don't divorce, but I don't really care. So I'm wondering, what did you think about how they, they, they just kind of attacked what seemed like it was going to be like the juiciest part of this movie, which uh, honestly might have had a quieter resolution than we might have thought? Yeah, it's definitely not like a plot heavy driven movie. Mm -hmm. It's definitely more like based around uh, the characters. And I definitely agree with what you said of, of the movie doesn't present who is right and who is wrong. And that mm -hmm. is, you know, very true to life, like in like relationships and couple dynamics uh assigning blame is typically the worst thing that you can do saying this party is in the right and this party is in the wrong and we need to like you know adjust the wrong party right working as a couple is all about coming to mutual understandings which i think 
in terms of your question of, of is it okay to tell your partner a white lie or how do you do that within relationships? That's all going to depend on who you are as a couple. Every couple is going to be different. Um, and the important thing is understanding what is important to your partner and what is important to you and then how you work towards that together. So I think this conflict could have perhaps been avoided between uh, the two main characters of this film if they had spoken to each other openly and honestly before this inciting incident. Mm-hmm. You know, if um, if he had spoken to her like now now they understand like that her main issue is feeling like he was judging her work and she didn't feel valued in his eyes in that way um more i think than than the lying is is an issue well the funny thing about it is i think it it could all be avoided you know if he's like outright like is honest but just says hey i don't think it's for me like, there's always like, can, can you just say something like that if you're like, you know, uh, giving someone feedback on something that they did? And he ultimately kind of gets to that point as well after the fact where he's like, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm probably wrong. I, I don't I don't do this for a living. But at the same point, you got to be able to like, you know, probably like sell this to s- eventually sell this book to someone that's also not a writer. So maybe the opinion of a layperson does matter. And like, that's something I thought about even in regards to like what I do for a living. It's like, I'm a lawyer. We talk about our cases amongst each other. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to present them to a jury. How does a layperson see this matter? Because they're going to be the ones making the decision at the end of the day. You don't want to necessarily be in a bubble. But like, if you're if your significant other doesn't like your thing, not the end of the world. And maybe she would have just reacted differently. But like, I think the movie is very clear in being like, hey, it's understandable where he was coming from. And he wasn't malicious about it. And it, it doesn't judge him for that. Well, it's important, I think, to know that that neither of them are wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's that's very true to life. It's it's all about um, understanding what is important to your partner. Do you think the movie conveyed that well, though? I do. I, I really do. I was surprised at Julia Louis-Dreyfus's um, like really visceral reaction to finding out this white lie, you know, mm. like thinking their whole marriage is a white <laughs> at all now that it seemed like a really solid foundation of marriage they had and and to be in a relationship for so long and to have it upturned so much seemed a little not realistic to me i feel like how could you have been a couple for so long and and this is the biggest trial or tribulation you've ever been through you know especially like someone who's married to a therapist i think they she maybe should have had a little bit more emotional intelligence <laughs> through more conversations um about you know what she values in their partnership and and is honestly that important to her well and, well, at the, well at the same time i think it also goes to something else that i want to talk about a little later is that the movie does take a little bit of a turn into being about like how much of our personal identity and worth we get from our jobs and if that's even a good thing or not and it kind of becomes a movie about that later on and that maybe that that speaks to a little bit about why she got had such a strong emotional reaction is that she's comes to question whether or not she's like you know, caring way too much about like this line of work in general, even though it's obviously, you know, uh, been successful enough for her. Uh, Gage, I, Andrea did t- tip me off to the fact that you weren't as big of a fan of this movie as she was. So I'm wondering, we're talking a little bit about just like, you know, how this couple interacted and uh, if, if we kind of bought how they, they kind of hashed this out. Was there something about their uh, about their relationship and how they interacted that didn't ring as true to you? Or did your issues with the movie lie, lie elsewhere? No, I honestly, the, the relationship that's at the core of the mm-hmm. film, I Actually thought was really the only decent part of it okay um, let me be clear i don't think that this is like a bad movie mm-hmm. it's just i don't see what everyone else is seeing it there's to me really nothing impressive about this whatsoever 
Okay. Uh, I, I love this kind of movie, like this, like slice of life, kind of low stakes. White people problems. Yeah. Well, like I like that kind of movie, like uh, like a Joanna Hogg movie. I mean, if you want to talk about a movie that's about a bunch of rich people who are like upset about stuff that honestly does not matter. Those are really like well-directed, well-made movies where that's what it's about. They're totally different tones, though. Oh, two different tones for sure. Um, but stylistically, there's a lot more going on in sure. like say, a Joanna Hogg movie or like, you know, a Richard Linklater movie or, or something along those lines where it's like a slice of life, low stakes movie about people talking about their feelings versus this where my main problem was mainly, I think, with the performances and the editing where it just didn't feel authentic. Uh, it, I didn't feel like I was watching real people have real conversations. I I didn't really um, connect with them and feel like any of them were particularly funny or likable. And the editing particularly, there's like this mm. weird half second pause between every line in this movie. Yeah, I didn't uh, pick where, up on that. Interesting. Maybe it's just me, but it like there was no moment where people are talking over one another or, you know, it, it, there's something about the flow of the conversations that just didn't make it feel authentic, which is, I feel like, really what a movie like this lives and dies by. Um, so I just wasn't able to buy in completely. With that said, it's not a terrible movie. It's just not particularly well made or captivating. Um, it's, it's extremely mid. It's aggressively mid. <laughs> It's not, not a not a terrible movie. I just didn't like anything about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't really impressed by anything about it. No. <laughs> it, can be, it can be not for him. It's not. Yeah, I just guess I, I'm impressed in that. Like, I I kind of found that like I, I'm in a different line of work, but it's still questions I kind of think about sometimes. And I like to think about if I still worked in a more creative field. And I guess I do put out I put out a podcast for the world to listen to. I don't like avoid any negative criticism. But who the heck's really going to come give me a bunch of negative criticism about this anyway? You know, I mean, it's like I I, I don't have like a bunch of like friends that like you know are like come up to me like hey listen to that it was bad you know not saying i've never put out a bad episode but like i just don't have people coming up to me like that and like i mean i and like Dan daniel edits the podcast for me sometimes he'll give me constructive criticism every now and then and like it's just it's as well taken but i guess it's a little different when it's like you know i liked it or i didn't like it can with without much more like explanation it's just like you know it's it's harder to take but like i guess and i was a journalist in a prior life and it's like in that one like you're you have an editor and you just got to take what they say there's, it's not like there's not a whole lot else it's like i'm not giving that stuff to a third party before i turn it into the person that's going to change it so it's like I, I i can kind of relate to this but it, not totally so it's interesting like you know thinking about it being like wow like you know how do i interact with what i produce and or how do i how do i share what i produce and how do i take that in and also like am I happy with what I'm doing with my life? Like, I feel like they are, those are pretty serious things that a lot of people can still re relate to, especially the latter part of this movie for some reason. And I'm like, well, this is all pretty serious. Like I, I appreciated the tone and I did laugh a decent amount at the writing. I kind of do see what you're saying, Gage, about how everyone does kind of get their, even in all the tense, more dramatic scenes, they, everyone gets their lines off pretty cleanly. Like you said, it's not like it's ever really a messy argument. It's all delivered very cleanly. I can see that. It didn't bother me in the moment though. You said you like the central relationship. Did you have a little more trouble kind of connecting to the sister and brother-in-law who's like an actor? And that's like, a did that feel like like too convenient of a parallel for you that they were trying to like kind of uh, contrast them against? Um, I uh, Honestly, I didn't have any strong feelings about that. I did mm -hmm. kind of wonder why the sister and her husband were in the movie. Thematically, it kind of makes sense, but... I suppose they I want to show what these people's lives are like and who the people are they're hanging out with, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could make an argument. Why, why is anything in any movie? You know, it, it, it kind of adds to the story. But what I really I will say the the thing about this movie that I completely bounced off of the most was their son, 
the the son mm. of characters also a writer yes i did not understand what his problem was and i don't i'm not sure if he understood it either because what it boiled down to my takeaway was he's sad he doesn't get to go on dates with his parents yeah what is that about <laughs> 23 years old and he's like oh my parents love each other too much get a real problem like <laughs> that is bullshit yeah i i will say that is not a feeling that i have ever once heard come up with a client like my parents love each like, like their marriage is just too good i'm the third wheel i never once have i heard that as a as a uh you know an issue with family dynamics that uh, typically does not <laughs> happen. In some ways, it does kind of go to the rest of the movie that we didn't talk about yet. And like, I think one p- thing that a lot of people are giving this credit for, which I also do give it some credit for, is everyone's like, oh, I, I came to this movie because it was like, wow, this woman spirals because her husband says that. That's a really intriguing premise that gets resolved like two thirds of the way through the movie. And then it starts to focus again on like, uh, on Don, like questioning him himself as a therapist, if he's any good. Cause like laced throughout the movie, we see him talking to, uh, his clients played by a uh, real life couple, Amber Tamblin and David Cross. And they're just like been really, really vile towards him. Cause they realize they've never like improved on their relationship in like the years they've seen, seeing him. Um, Zach Cherry plays another, uh, client that just like says things under his breath at the end of every, uh, the end of every session about how terrible he is, but he still keeps going anyway. And he's just really starting to question himself. If he's zoned out, if he's clocked out of his job, if this is worth it, um, Beth starts to question if, whether or not she needs to stay in that profession. And then like, at the same time, their son is coming to them. Like they, they're criticizing him for being at a dead end job at, uh, cannabis store because he's at, at wants to be a writer, but like, doesn't really want them involved in that either. And I guess like they maybe tried to do a bit much with him. And they also really tried to resolve his relationship with them with them in a way that maybe didn't work by like, you know, having her be slightly racist towards a guy who's about to rob their store and <laughs> then, and then save him. And it's, it seems like a very, it seems like a very convenient ending, but at the same time, I thought it was an interesting mechanism by which she kind of got caught out on her hypocrisy a little bit when the son is explaining why he doesn't really want to like her help with this writing. Like, what did you guys think of like that aspect of it specifically? I think uh, in terms of like everybody seeming to question their role in their job, like everybody questions their role in their work at the exact same time in life, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like Julia Louis-Dreyfus is questioning her ability as a writer. Uh, Don is questioning his ability as a therapist. Their son is questioning if he's ever going to be a writer. The sister doesn't want to be an interior designer anymore. The husband is going to quit acting. Like everybody has like an identity crisis at the exact same moment that felt very, um, uh, I'm going to say it's too on the nose. It's too on the nose about what the movie is trying to say. The, The thing that felt the most too on the nose for me is when they the three of them have the conversation as a family where the son is like, you know, I'm always the third wheel, whatever. And mom, you, you lied to me that I was such a good student. I wasn't a good student. I deserved a C. I didn't deserve a B, whatever. I should not have been put in the advanced swim class. It's, it's, yeah, it's one doesn't really feel very real. Cause as I've already said, like, no, no one, I don't want to say no one, but like, it's not a common problem to be like, my parents love each other too much. It just, it felt so on the nose because it was very clearly paralleling the situation that had just happened with her husband so that he could turn around and say, you're doing the exact same thing. You know, um, it, it, that was just way too on the nose for me that, that felt not very real. It felt very scripted which I think kind of took away from the like slice of life 
um aspect of it. yeah 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 i get that i i guess i i guess i did find myself I, I did still find myself kind of moved in the moment as they were like going over that with him in a way where it kind of snapped i'll say i'll say that like i, I still kind of appreciated in the moment where they kind of like were able to put their differences for aside for a second and then just like kind of snap back into place it did kind of feel like the kind of thing where it's like i've i'd seen my parents fight before and then like when something came up with my brother or i it's like all right, like that's more important than whatever our BS is. Let's make sure our kid's okay. Like I kind of bought that as like a, a turning point in the movie for them to like realize, all right, like we're being ridiculous. We need to like actually like look out for the well-being of our son, even if the son's a little bit of a, a little dramatic as well about, uh, about, 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 about some of his problems. And I, I kind of appreciate it. The son's played by Owen Teague. He actually played the son in uh, Two Leslie, the movie that got all this infamous uh, Oscar attention last year for the Andrew Riseboro thing. Uh, I think I, I, th- I think I think he's a solid actor, but I, I I can also agree though that like you know I guess the movie does have a, a lot of stuff going on at the same time that like you know it, it, in theory maybe it could have like prioritized that screen time in a different in, in a different way. Like I, I still enjoyed some of the stuff with the siblings. Like I freaking love the uh, I, fr- I freaking love the uh, the scene with Jeannie, the scenes with Jeannie Berlin who plays the mom. Uh, I thought I thought she was delightful. Um, and at the same time, I guess it's like, yeah, a lot of people are going through similar stuff, but at the same time, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to like, you know, have, I, I appreciated seeing her like go to her mom and just like, you know, she, or the mom's like the one person that just has, is just doing her own thing, I guess. And so I guess I, it was a different energy to get in the movie compared to anyone, everyone else. So I appreciate, I appreciated them expanding the world into that corner, even if the rest of the corners were like, you know, a little bit like, you know, similar, if that makes sense. I I'd almost meant to go back go backwards a second, Andrea, and talk to you a little bit more about Don as far as far as the therapy scenes themselves. I was curious because I don't know if the movie was I, again like we've all talked about the movie was trying to you know showing how they were all going through their own little like kind of crises in life and all that. Did you think it was like you know I don't want to say if, if, if those therapy scenes rang true because you you're not going through a midlife crisis, but I, I I'm I'm wondering did those uncomfortable scenes in therapy did those seem like they were kind of like you know, written to kind of written into the script to like, you know, get to a certain, just get to a certain point the filmmaker was trying to make, or did you actually kind of like appreciate seeing therapy maybe being depicted in a way that wasn't like, you know, uh, totally, totally like hundred percent working in a movie. And cause then oftentimes it seemed like it's turned like, okay, this person's helping themselves to go into therapy. Did you think it was an interesting depiction of like what it looks like when it's not going well, I suppose. Well, no, I actually found it to be like probably one of the most honest and accurate depictions of therapy that I've seen in a film. Because typically I feel like therapy scenes are used as like exposition dumps and like kind of cheap ways to explore character motivations. And, and also progress feelings. probably isn't always linear, I'm supposing, when you're in therapy. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and this, the way that it showed therapy, therapists are human. Like sometimes we make mistakes. I actually found it to be, you know, we don't have to be going through a midnight life crisis to like I guess empathize with what Don is going through because like, you know, imposter syndrome is very real, no matter how long you've been doing this job or how qualified you are. Like he's just questioning his skill set, and he's going through um, issues that I feel like a lot of therapists go through, such as like mixing up which issue is which client. Um, if you that find yourself- to be hard, you have a pretty, a lot of therapists probably have pretty big, like patient list, you know? Yeah. Well, you're supposed to write a note after every session. And if you're struggling to remember which client is which, just read your note from the last oh, session. Okay. <laughs> but I, I did empathize when he did that. Like, I was like, yeah, that's, I could, I could see that. Um, and I found a lot of the, um, the therapy dialogue to be very like true to a therapist who's like, you know, maybe not 
great, maybe not like the best therapist ever, but he's using that I can recognize, you know, like the in the very first scene when David Cross and Amber uh, Tamblin are arguing and he asks like, would it be helpful for him to repeat back what you said? That is probably like the most common couples therapy technique out there, like the most basic thing. Mm. So I can pick up on like what he was trying to do with his clients. But I think his he did have several um, places where he is failing as a therapist, namely that he is continuing to go on with these clients when he is not seeing any progress and he's addressing it. So, so like, for example, uh, David Cross and Amber Tamblin, he tells them at the end, like, just get a divorce. Like there's nothing, <laughs> whatever, but he saved that until seven years, years in or something or three, years, know, yeah. three years that they've been in therapy and not making any progress. And he's clearly already made this assessment. He should have been exploring that a long time ago of like, what would it mean to you guys to separate? Why is that not an option for you on the table? As opposed to just telling them to do it. Maybe you could have had an honest conversation. And sometimes therapy does have to be confrontational, at least in my view. That is my. I was going to say, is there there like a way to like know when like the lifespan of a client patient or a therapist patient relationship has run its course? Like, is there like, is there, is there a clear answer to that? Or it's just, you kind of got to come to come to that conclusion together. It's different with every patient. But absolutely, yeah. therapy is never supposed to be a never-ending process. It is supposed to have an an end to it, um, and you always hope that is with the patient uh, and you coming to a mutual decision that they no longer need you and they're just doing much better, um, and they can come back if they ever do need you. Um, but sometimes it does happen where clients are just not making progress at all, and it is your if if you feel like you've hit every wall that you can, like you've tried everything that you know. If, if the client is still not making progress, it is your ethical responsibility to actually end that therapeutic relationship and refer them to another uh, therapist so that they can hopefully make progress after e- exploring that with the client and making sure that's an option that they're comfortable with. I guess I was going to say, is it, is, I guess it's, I suppose it's incumbent on the therapist to like recognize like when their own personal issues might be like coming into play and distracting them in some way such that like that could be hindering the process as opposed to anything wrong with necessarily their match with the patient. Like that's probably just has to come through like some self, some self-reflection and like good communication with the patient. Cause like it's, we're kind of led to believe at some points, like he has a lot going on in his life. Like he's having to deal with the stuff with at some point in the movie, when he's still seeing the patients, he's having to deal with his uh, issues with his wife. And also like, he has some own personal vanity issues too, where he's just going through his own midlife crisis with his own personal appearance. Like he has a lot of stuff that's like on his mind on top of that. And he's got it. It's like, I guess it's on the therapist to like sort that stuff out. Like how much of this is my own personal shit and how much of it is just like uh, me not clicking with this patient anymore. And he's got to like have some good, good communication like he's struggling with in his personal life, I suppose. Yeah, no, that's absolutely also something that we go through uh, training when we're becoming therapists is how to oh, recognize. Compartmentalize, you know, yeah. Yeah, um, when, when you are actually, Actually, like a lot of people talk about projection, like clients uh, projecting onto their therapist, but it can happen the other way around as well. Mm. Uh, it's actually called countertransference. Uh, when you as the therapist are projecting your issues onto the client. And if you notice that you are doing that, then it is your ethical <laughs> obligation to address it. Um, and when you're a student or when you're a registered intern, you're supposed to bring that to your supervisor and talk about it. 
Um, if you are already a licensed clinician, then you can consult with one of your coworkers. You can talk about referring the patient out. Um, but yeah, no, it is it is always on the therapist to address any countertransference issues. Gage, as a, as, as a layperson like myself, because like I'm wondering if you had any other thoughts on these therapy scenes. Like, I mean, I, I think you already talked a little bit about how you thought the filmmaking was lacking in this. I don't know how much more you can necessarily do from a filmmaking perspective in like a, a fairly motionless therapy scene. But I'm curious, like if it's something like it's something about that was lacking in that department stood out to you. If there was stuff you liked about those scenes as someone that like, you know, is around a therapist a lot, but like, you know, wasn't, wasn't actually, is not actually one. Was there something that did strike you in that as like being something you particularly enjoyed or thought, you know, could have been done a little better. As someone who has gone to therapy before, I think. (laughs) (laughs) No, Um, no, honestly, I would say the therapy scenes are some of the strongest in the movie. um, Mostly because I, I think that was the one part that felt real to me was yeah. the David Cross and his real wife. Uh, acting it, was, it was uncomfortable, but I totally agree with you. And that's probably why. Yeah, it, it was uncomfortable. And it was that felt more naturalistic to me than more of the, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the all the scenes outside of that therapy room. Um, I don't know. It felt a little bit more stilted and more rehearsed. You know, mm-hmm. David Cross is a super skilled actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I agree, like, the you know, the the core two, like Julia Louis-Dreyfus and uh, Edmore Tully, whatever his real name is. Tobias to Smith. Uh, <laughs> they're very skilled. And uh, I do think most of the stuff, like, involving them works to an extent. It's more of, like, just directorially. What? How do you pronounce your last name? Last name? Holof Center? Oh, Holof Center. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I just disagree generally with how she like approached these films, uh, not the, these scenes rather, and um, how they should come across on camera. That's not to say that every scene in the movie is bad. It's just not personally how I would have directed the movie if I were her. I totally forgot that uh, Tobias Menzies was to- Edmir Tully on Game of Thrones. I, I, I first really came to know him as uh, as Prince Philip in seasons three and four of The Crown. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, born to wear like capes and shit <laughs> well I, I do think it's interesting that's like this guy that's just like apparently he had 20 he was on 24 episodes of outlander so this guy that's like you know probably known a lot of americans is just like a, a british dude and thing and tv is like all of a sudden like playing just like a husband a, a husband a new york husband in a, in a in an indie movie in america and like you know so um, <laughs> yeah uh no no I, I i do feel what you're saying now that you put it that way even if like you know the other parts of the movie i kind of enjoyed more as they were going like you know i, I do think there's something to the idea like yeah I, I appreciate the fact that she could like, you know, deal with some pretty serious subject matter while keeping this also fairly light tone. Maybe I should have felt a little more uncomfortable in other parts of the movie. Uh, whereas like, you know, it, it just it felt like pretty easygoing, quippy conversation that eventually kind of like all resolved itself. Whereas like the discomfort I felt in watching that couple on the couch, like I, the fact that I felt more uncomfortable watching that than I maybe even did with her, some of the conversations that they had after the big revelation, uh, her and uh, Beth and uh, Don had. I think that says something, even if I did appreciate some of the the back and forth that they ultimately had when she did confront him. Uh, there, there's something to be said for that. And I do think I do think the therapy was uh, was handled fairly well. It's so interesting to me that you guys both said you're like made uncomfortable by those therapy scenes with David Cross. Those were my favorite scenes in the movie. I didn't feel uncomfortable at I, all. I, what, oh. what about when he told his wife, I don't like you? No, that was <laughs> That's so, that's such good stuff. 
Like, I, I guess the, the, Does that seem like a breakthrough to you and the therapist and you thought it, it was like, great. Well, yes, they got it, it out. There. It could have been. Yeah. He didn't really do anything with it. Like there's so much to those couple interactions that he's really not doing much with it. So yeah, he's definitely showing signs of burnout and stuff like, like, but he is trying, he's still using therapeutic techniques. Like I didn't watch those scenes and think like this therapist is awful, but yeah, he wasn't on his A game and there was a lot of good stuff to explore in that relationship. I didn't mean that as like a criticism, I guess. Yeah maybe I felt more uncomfortable watching it because I'm not a therapist like you are. And you're probably used to hearing a thing every now and then that's like, you know, is a hard truth, but it's like a sign of progress. So you are like, yeah, that's good. Whereas I'm just like, Oh God, that hurts. And I was like, and I'm like watching it. I'm like, Oh God, like that's terrible. Like, I mean, how are they ever gonna come back from that? It's like what I'm thinking as I'm watching it. And I'm like, Oh God, that's like, that, 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 that might be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And, uh, and then it seems like they're almost like, it seems like they almost come together just because they both like hate Don so much. And like that, that, that's what ultimately like kind of solves their problems to at least some extent, I guess, and, uh, gives them something to bond over. But I, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think it was well done. And I, I just mean like, man, like that felt, that felt rough to me in a way that like, I I feel like you see a couple therapy scenes in movies sometimes. And then like, they're almost like over the top in a way. And this just felt even like more realistic and that's what maybe made me feel more uncomfortable where it's like a lot of times like couples therapy scenes in movies like it's like built to show that that couple is like not doing well and they haven't failed in like less than 90 seconds or something whereas this they took this movie even though it's less than 100 minutes did take its time in those moments in a way that like allowed them to like just like hit heavy i suppose yeah i thought it, i thought it was great i loved those scenes the scenes with uh david cross were some of my favorite in the film really stand out is there anything else about the creative side of this movie gauge that we didn't already touch on that you had thoughts about? Cause like, I get it. Like that, that, that stuff within the therapy kind of mattered more to you, but I, I did want to like, kind of like go back to you one more time on that because I, it's something, it's something I just, I, 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 I really, I, I saw, I saw it with our friend Ben um, when I was in Los Angeles, he's one of the, uh, one of the, one of the people that actually writes, that's actually uh, identifies as a writer that I met. And I, and I, and I had a really interesting time just kind of talking to him about like how you decide who you show your work to and stuff like that. So I'm curious, did you have any other thoughts on just like, you know, how this movie kind of like deals with like the creative process that I didn't already kind of get from you. Yeah. I mean, it, it does touch on some interesting subjects like you were talking about before, how everyone is um kind of doubting their job and what they do for a living in this film. And specifically for Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who is like a maybe somewhat successful, but not super successful. Not writer. enough to have her book on dis- on the top, sh- on the top display at the bookstore. Yeah. Yeah. So th- there's some interesting bits in there about, you know, creativity and expression and like self-worth relating to your work for sure for students did not read her book i mean you know we're we're talking to some really serious uh first world problems here yeah none of her students read her book it's it's so sad when you wake up and you kiss your loving husband and you exit your brownstone into brooklyn new york and you get coffee with your publisher it's a very hard life um (laughs) i don't know i don't know if it was a brownstone as much as it like still it was a pretty nice like you know two-bedroom apartment in new york that uh, um, in a seemingly pretty good location, even though we're led to believe her book is not selling well. And he seems to be like having patients fire him by the day and want to recover money from him. They're still doing okay. You know, with that said, you know, there's place in my heart for these kind of low stakes movies uh, that are about like actual humans with real human problems, working through them together. I like that kind of movie. I just think this is a, a decent one to catch uh, on Hulu Eight months from now, it's you're the a, you're you're the problem with movie theaters these days. People need it, to support movies like this. It's a miracle it's, when a Nicole Hall Center gets I, a movie. I saw made. it in theaters. I, I don't know, regret I it. 
no one else should do that. Oh my god! <laughs> this one goes straight to streaming, and uh, oh god, extremely mid. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, I mean, you can you can say a movie's bad, but say you need to support it. I think I think like I think there's a moral imperative to support the Nicole Hall of centers that are still somehow getting movies made. Okay, um, <laughs> um, I, I no, I I, I I I can totally understand why something like this isn't necessarily for everyone. I just you know I still had a nice time with it, and I just thought it was an interesting thing to think about, like how how you decide like you know who you're going to trust when you're a creative person it's again like like i said i i I honestly probably should have thought a little bit more about myself and how i wanted to talk about how i want people to consume my podcast before i started talking about this like i don't know what the right answer to that is because it's like i don't really have time to show my work to people before i put it out you know like i already have i already have daniel hounding at me to get every episode of the podcast he's out on time and to then post a promotional tweet uh (laughs) in which i'm sure he'll uh really appreciate me putting him on blast when he edits this podcast uh but like it's like i barely have enough time to do that with my full-time job it's like if i had time to like you know bring my work around to everyone before i put it out there yeah i kind of think i would and I, I i would ask my friends to just be honest with me but you also like understand that urge to like you know i uh, just want to like make someone feel good uh and i and, and you know it's like i i, I just kind of like assume that people are too busy to listen to the podcast and i'll just be like look subscribe you don't have to listen that's what i tell people and like you know it's it's, it's just my instinct to do it i don't like expect people to like consume what i produce but it's like you know i i totally understand like you know why someone would feel uncomfortable coming to me and being like that was bad like what does that really accomplish uh especially when it's like something that's already been put out into the world because that's just what i do so it's like i i, I get the urge to just like want to make people happy and it, it, it's it's just like you know like andrew is saying like it's interesting to think of where that line it should be drawn with white lies. And I don't think there's a ton of movies about that. Yeah, I think I think you're right. There's not a ton of movies about this, um, like kind of moral quandary uh, that we we kind of all face. Like ev- everyone in the world has told white lies, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and, and who can you trust with telling a white lie to? Who can you not? Who is it important to lie to? Who is it important to not lie to? Like, do, is your partner entitled to 100% brutal honesty all the time? Um, that is that is a morally subjective question that is for every couple to answer on their own. Um, I was just absolutely delighted though to have a movie about a therapist and a writer who are like mildly successful in their careers and their lives but still have problems because I did find like you know I saw myself in it a little bit and every morning I wake up I kiss my 55 year old husband (laughs) I I get out of my brain I hate when he does this (laughs) I call my 23 year old son I was five years old when I get birth. I go out I grab a coffee (laughs) I I get one of my books my published books off the bookshelf I read that (laughs) and that's why this movie hit so close to home you want to know an example of like a time where I I deflected as opposed to telling a white lie lately and I think people just got to get better at doing that (laughs) I I, so I was just in Los Angeles and like I had to take a decent amount of Ubers when I was there and like a lot of the drivers are actually pretty talkative I'm not one of those people that's like how dare my Uber driver talk to me it was just funny where some of the conversations went and I think I was just talking to them about my vacation. I'm seeing a bunch of movies while I'm here. And the guy's like, oh, you know what movie I saw recently? I saw Fast Fast X. Do you see that one? And I was like, yeah, I did. He's like, it's awesome, right? And like, what do you do when like you're in a conversation with a stranger like that? Do you really want to like, should I really, should I really shit on my Uber driver's movie opinion? You know? So I was just like, I was just like, you know, 
really like the earlier ones better. It's like, oh, I get that. You know, I, yeah. I, I feel like that's because that relationship it is low stakes. You're never going right, to see yeah. that ever again. So like, it's easier to have a pleasant conversation <laughs> that is lubricated by a white lie rather than go through the uncomfortableness of like saying an opinion that like you don't know this guy like what if he what if he's an asshole about it i i feel a thousand percent the opposite direction specifically when it comes to art <laughs> if something, you you tell them and specifically if it's someone that you're never going to see again you triple down and oh i mean God. that completely seriously if i'm in an uber and a guy tells me his favorite movie's rogue one i'm gonna say pull over the car and i'm gonna educate you <laughs> I, I disagree with that completely backwards. I think if somebody's <laughs> important in your life, then it's important to be honest with them. But if you're never going to see them again, then it's fine to make an interaction uh, more pleasant by telling a white lie. And this is how we differ. Uh, <laughs> and it's so, so, so hard every day. <laughs> What's funny about the white lie in this movie was it's like it wasn't un- it, it wasn't that uncomfortable for him to do, though. At least as, as far as we know, like it only became uncomfortable when she found out. May, about it. But, but well, I would disagree with that because he was talking to the brother-in-law in the store about like, I don't know, man, it's too late for me to tell her now. Like, how am I supposed to? So I do think. But yeah, I was just I was I liked this movie a lot. I love Slice of Life stuff. I'm I'm a sucker for it. I'm a sucker for anything I can see myself reflected in. Um I, I thought there were funny moments. I really enjoyed the therapy content. I enjoyed. I enjoyed the uh, the, the other. Yeah, I, I I feel like even though I saw it like it only six days ago, I'm having trouble remembering a lot of the individual things I really laughed at. Um, do we have bagels? Was the funniest line in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I I I also liked the the cannabis store employee that kept saying she's an executive producer. I laughed at that. Yeah. Um, I feel like there. I feel like there are a few other things where people just like got called out on stuff, and that I just laughed at. That I'm not coming to now, but I really did laugh throughout. And I guess I just appreciated, like, again, I appreciated like that it did make me laugh that much, even if like it made me think about some pretty uh, serious issues too. But like, I I can't disagree with some of the criticisms Gage made. Um, Gage, any other thoughts other than the fact that it was aggressively made for you? Uh, I'd say if you want a movie like this that is like interesting, uh, check out Joanna Hogg. Uh, it's not Joanna Hogg is not like this. <laughs> Those movies are like those movies are like so much darker. Yeah, I mean that's part of what makes them more interesting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't, and I don't disagree that Joanna Hogg's movies are good. I'm just like that. I don't think like if you're predisposed to like something about that in th- is the good is the in your version mind's the better version of this that you're just gonna like dig the Joanna Hogg stuff. This is a different vibe, you know. Um, uh, Andrew, any other final thoughts? Uh, I just want to brag about Gage for a minute and say okay. I will not face this quandary because he's such a talented writer and everything he's ever written is so so good. Oh, okay. <laughs> I enjoy your letterbox reviews, Gage. I did. I did not realize that you like actually kind of identified a, as a writer too. I just know based on like what you do for work. I just assume maybe you're a little more of a director at heart, or you, you're, you're, you're both, huh? I do it all. I do it all. Okay. Well, if you, well, so like, if I mean, if Andrew's just being too nice right now and just saying that she's always going to tell you it's good, I'm you know, not. If, I'm yeah, not. Okay, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, They're so good. Okay. Then if you ever need someone to knock you down a peg, uh, I mean, just you can send it. Uh, you I'll can give send you a call. <laughs> 
Uh, but yeah, that, that, that is, you hurt my feelings despite, despite whatever gauge is telling you. I mean, I, 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 I say go support it. If it's near at a theater near you, we're going to move on to talking about Blackberry, which honestly might be out of theaters, but probably on VOD soon. So, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that way you don't have to worry about uh, the moral imperative of seeing a movie like this in theaters, though. I hope, hope everyone did, but, uh, Blackberry is the, uh, is the newest, uh, film from writer, director, and uh, co-star of this one, Matt Johnson. He is, uh, he's a Canadian filmmaker whose first couple of movies were, uh, very, very uh, low-budget, down-and-dirty productions. Uh, one of them was called The Dirties, uh, no pun intended. The other was Operation Avalanche. They were a little bit more... Um, I, I forgot, Gage, were they mockumentaries? You've seen them. I haven't. Uh, mockumentaries, right? They are both um, found footage movies, actually. Oh, so, okay. I don't know why I thought it was documentaries. His debut, The Dirties, is a found footage school shooting comedy. Oh, and yeah. uh, Operation Avalanche, his follow-up, is a found footage period piece mockumentary about faking the moon landing. Okay. Yeah. I thought one of them was about, uh, I, I, I thought one of them was a uh, mockumentary style and, uh, uh, but yeah, so this is uh Blackberry is kind of his first like film working with like, you know, uh, more known actors and kind of doing it in a more uh, straightforward narrative style. Uh, even if there are like, you know, uh, docudrama aspects to it i would say because it's also kind of a comedy at the same time not to you know try and put it in a box but it tells the it tells the story about the rise and fall of the blackberry phone uh and kind of begins in 1996 where the canadian company research and motions uh its ceo uh is uh mike lazaridis or was our i'll just say was artist was artist uh played by jay barichel uh his bet his best friend is the co-founder of the company his name's uh doug freegan who's played by johnson uh they're trying to pitch an early version of this kind of cellular device you can put email in. They call it Pocket Link. They're pitching it to a guy named um, Jim Balsilli, played by Glenn Howerton, at a at a company at a different kind of like you know. I think it's like kind of like an office supply company that he's working at at the time or something like that. Uh, and he, at first he's kind of like, you know, whatever about their pitch, but then he runs, he does see potential runs into some problems where he loses his job, convinces um, research in motion to give him like a, basically a, a big stake in the company and make him CEO in exchange for like helping them realize this phone. And uh, they end up, you know, hitting it big at the right time and cornering the market. But then, we jump forward to a 2007 timeline and we all know what happened in 2007. That's when Apple introduced the iPhone. Uh, let me back up for a second, guys. You guys are both a few years younger than me. Let me ask, did either of you ever have a BlackBerry? I did not. I did not, but I remember my dad did when mm-hmm. they first came out, coming out and I got to play Brick Breaker on it and it was the biggest oh. thing of my life. So I had a BlackBerry at some point, but like I think I might have only had it for like a year. It felt like a long time, probably because it was just really cool and exciting to get something that was like an actual smartphone, whereas like I, I got because I got my phone, my first phone. I did my first phone until I started high school in 2005, and I got a flip phone. And I think I had a few different versions of a flip phone. I guess they were just not great products. I kept going through them fast. It wasn't like I was doing stupid shit with them, but I know I had a couple of like non-smartphone phones. And then I got the BlackBerry. But like I remember before, like I I had moved on to a Droid right before I went to college. So it was like I couldn't have had the BlackBerry for like even two years based on how long I had flip phones for and the fact that I had a droid before I went to college. But I had one. It was it was glorious. Like I remember being excited just to be able to easily use the Internet as opposed to like some shitty ESPN app on a flip phone to just get sports scores. That's what I remember more than anything. I remember that and Brick Baker. Those are my two fond memories of it. And I had that. And then it was it was gone. And like that would have been like, you know, by like. And I, I didn't like dump it for the iPhone, but like I would have gotten rid of it for, I guess, a touchscreen, a phone that was at least partially a touchscreen. Cause I think my droid is one of those like uh, slide kind of things you can slide out to use the keyboard or you can use the screen. I'm pretty sure. I think that's what I had. So it's like I, I, I had the, I had it at some point, probably in like around that height of the things like 06, 07, 08. And then I was done with it by like 
end of 08, early 09, around the time that you, they probably would have been really just like into free fall. So I had some connection to it, but you guys as someone that didn't really have any connection to it. And I'm curious, uh, Gage, because I know you enjoyed Matt Johnson's other movies because we talked about that the last time we did a podcast, but it's also probably been aware of the, over the last year, how there've been like, there's been a lot of TV shows about like tech companies going boom and bust, whether it be like, you know, the, 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 we work thing or the, you know, the Theranos thing or the, the Uber thing. Like there's this, there's just been a ton of these just in the last year. And those have had various varying degrees of success. So I'm wondering for you as someone who I think, I believe like this movie, what do you think that like Matt Johnson did particularly well that made it like stand apart and make this like a worthwhile venture compared to all these other things we've just seen in the last like 18 months dealing with like tech companies that got big, too big for their britches. 2023 is the year of the tech biopic journal boy. We, we have mm-hmm. air, we have flame and hot. We have yeah, so not only so yeah, tech and brand stuff. Yeah. Cause air's yeah. not even a tech thing, but just like we are, we're making movies about products. Uh, we're making movies about franchises, about products. Just, just today, my friend Tristan, my coworker told me that the new transformers movie is doing a crossover with GI Joe. So now oh. we have a, a Hasbro cinematic universe. Truly, we're headed into the darkest days. I mean, that is not that surprising, though. So as someone who's seen none of those movies, I'm <laughs> going to tell you that Blackberry is the best one of all of them. And the simple you, can, reason- you should watch Air. I'd be curious what you thought about Air. I, I'm not even going to dispute you, and I liked Air. Like, Blackberry is just as good as I've been. I haven't seen Air. Um, but the reason I'm prime now, so you don't even have to go support the movie theaters. Like I know you don't really care about it. You can just like go watch it on Amazon. Prime. <laughs> I need to go support Michael Jordan. Um, the, the ben reason- Affleck and Matt Damon, those guys really need your help. They do. Yeah. <laughs> what makes Blackberry, uh, I think a really interesting take on this whole like subgenre we've, we've developed in the past few years is that this is an extremely nuanced look into you know, the the creation of what is honestly one of the most important single products of the 2000s or of the 1900s and the 2000s. But also it, it's the way the characters are handled here. You know, a, a lot of that other stuff, the, the stuff about Theranos and uh, the other uh, shows you mentioned, it's, it's kind of just obvious, like, oh, these are bad people. Like these are people who are cheating the system. People who come from extreme wealth and are using that to, to gain leverage over others. And then, you know, I've heard, and again, I haven't seen air that it's almost the exact opposite. It's like a worship piece for the product where, you know, here's how we made something so great that you just can't wait to buy even to this day, uh, which, you know, I can't imagine wanting to, to, to watch something like that personally. Blackberry is kind of both, you know, it, it it admits that this is a super important product and like it was incredibly groundbreaking in the development of how we interface with technology, but also that the people involved, you know, in making that product completely strayed from their morals and what made them them and kind of embraced this culture of you know, constantly chasing profits and starting a, an all boys club, no girls allowed, outsourcing all labor to China, which they promised they would never do to themselves. You know, they, they eventually abandon everything that they held dear in chasing the almighty dollar. It's a classic story. It's, you know, I will say as from all of Matt Johnson's work, the least idiosyncratic and the least Matt Johnson but he's a skilled director and it's full of skilled performances. And uh, I think it's a solid movie. If, if you have to make a movie about this kind of shit, this is the way to do it. 
Andrea, what did you, what, what, what did you like most about Blackberry? Oh, man. Um, well, first, I wholeheartedly agree with everything Gage just said. I thought Matt Johnson's direction was really, really solid. And I think it really came across like I think he had a distinct directorial style and voice. And I think it was I think it was Dan that I was talking to uh, about this after we, we saw this movie together. Dan, let me when you're editing this, text me and let me know if this was you that I had this conversation <laughs> with. But someone pointed out to me and I completely agree. I think it was Dan that the beginning of this film directorially feels completely different than the end. Like it's it's much more like shaky, like hand cam style, you know, shooting through the blinds in the office space. It, it feels much more low budget. And then as the company gets more successful, the cam gets more steady. It it feels more like a high budget film. And I, I mm. just think that's a very interesting directorial choice by Johnson, one that works incredibly well and speaks thematically to the story he's telling. Um, so yeah, really impressed with Matt Johnson. Um, and, and I just think he's fucking delightful. I, I mm-hmm. love him on screen as well. Uh, I haven't seen- it's kind his, of the heart of the movie. Yeah, I haven't seen his other two films, but uh, we're yeah. big fans of the show, uh, Nirvana, the band, the show here, oh, which he okay. did. Yeah, love him, loved Glenn Howerton's performance. Uh, there, there was one scene that was an exception to that, which I'm sure we'll talk about later when we talk about performances. I loved the story. I didn't know any of this. It is, it's fascinating to me to watch the story unfold of how an entire market is created. You know, multi-billion-dollar market that, you know, every aspect of our lives has has evolved around now. The smartphone market. We're talking to you on a smartphone right now. You know. It's incredible to to watch how that happened. And I really do, I loved the characters. And I, I don't think their descent into immorality was as steep as, as Gage perceived it to be. Because I do think they they weren't all portrayed as like, you know, heartless money grabbers. Even You know, they're clearly capitalists. I don't know. I still perceived them as people, you know? Yeah, like, well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought it back to that because you answered my question with a lot of different things that you like the most about the movie. But I wanted yeah. you kind of brought it back to you kind of brought it back to what Gage said, which is where I wanted to go. And that, like, I, I I kind of agree with you. I think there's like a distinction to be made between like compromising your morals and compromising your principles. And I think it's interesting that like the movie like is a little like it's it's a little blurry as to what they're doing there because I think uh, Balsilli, uh, Glenn Howerton's character, as much as I like, I think his performance is pretty great. I've only listened to like one and interview with Matt Johnson. I think I've read one too, and I didn't really see exactly like how he decided to like go get him for that part. Cause like, it's something that could have been played by someone that's just more known for being a serious actor. And the, the movie might've still worked fine, but like, he really like committed to it in a way. Like I believed him and like, there's a, there's a risk, I guess, when you do that. And someone's just going to like, I'm going to see him as Dennis Reynolds and maybe there's nothing else to it. And he like commits so hard that like, I just, I did buy him as this guy, but like, it's, it's, it's less clear from the start of like, like exactly where his, if he, if he's like actually just like a, a, a an immoral businessman or just a hard ass, but like, you know, he he's the one that clearly is more uh, culpable in doing the illegal shit later on, and uh, whereas with like the choices that uh, um, Lazardus makes, it's I mean like you got you talked about it, it's kind of going against his principles with when they when they when they actually like have to like they start shipping stuff over to China and because there's nothing inherently wrong about that unless you're like knowingly like I don't know using child labor or something like that but it's like you know it, well, it, we know <laughs> we all well, know. Sure. I guess we do, but like, but more, more so that like, he is like knowingly like 
going against all of this stuff he talked about earlier in the movie about how like, look, I can see, I can hear the quality of this product. I can hear this buzz. I know this, I know that. And I really enjoyed, the thing I enjoyed most about the movie is how, how it just like kind of interrogated like whether you can keep this level of creativity and fun in a, in a startup and still be successful. And you see the life get slowly sucked out of them. And I thought that was like a, I thought it, it honed in more on like, in, largely through like tracking how through how Johnson's character is feeling throughout the movie. Like you can just kind of see that like quick, that, that seep away as they're trying to keep up. And I'm like, and I found myself thinking, is there a way, was there, was there a way this could have ended any other way? And I don't know. And I think that's kind of interesting. You know, it's like, like if they were going to need, cause they eventually what, 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 what's their downfall is, but also what kind of gets them over the top is that he goes and recruits these other big time engineers when they're failing to like, you know, uh, scale up. He ha- but the only way he can afford them is by like backdating these stocks. And that's how he doesn't have the cash on hand. So it's like, all right, getting those guys helped them have the breakthrough they needed to like get on top of the marketplace. But that was also their downfall. And I'm like, I, I, what else could they, I don't know, what else could they have done? Like, I, I, I'm not sure. And it's like, was there no way to like remain competitive and still be that same, like, you know, happy, happy company. And I, I don't know. And I thought it was fascinating to like watch them get squeezed out of like what their vision was up until that point. And I, I, I thought that was, I didn't, I don't, I don't, and none of the other kind of brand movies I've seen have really like dealt, done, dealt with like that aspect of this kind of story specifically in the way that this one did. Yeah. I think that's partly why the perspective of this movie is more interesting than a lot of those other tech biopics is because it's not just, you know, this all happened because of unchecked greed or this happened because of a bad guy making a bad decision. A lot of these decisions are out of their hands. You know, they're, they're forced errors that they have to make in order to stay afloat as a company. And it's, you know, in addition to a critique of BlackBerry, the company, it's also a critique of just the capitalist environment that forces companies to exponentially grow forever until mm-hmm. they explode, essentially. Yeah, they keep having to go back to like the board of like, <laughs> it's funny, Ver- Verizon has been so many things in like the last like 20 years, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I'm pretty sure when I first got my phone, or Verizon has absorbed other stuff. Uh, I think earlier on in this movie, like they, they are they are pitching to what is then, I guess, Bell Atlantic or something like that. But I think, I don't know if that, I don't know if that became something, it, I guess it's, it's, it's eventually what turns into Verizon, I believe, correct? And I, when I first got my phone, it was on Altel. That was our provider. I think Altel like got absorbed by Verizon, but like I think I think you hear them being called like different things throughout the movie. Like they're that that company's it eventually turns in or maybe it turns into AT and T. I, I or no or no he, that that that's it's because the app Apple's partnering with AT and T. But like that that entity they keep having to go back to. Like they keep having to pitch to them, and like the, the, their expectation is like, what is the new thing? How are you growing? Are you gonna like? Are you gonna level up? Like your product, the, the product is not good enough. There's just so much pressure from external forces for growth. And it's like, yeah, it's it, it doesn't automatically mean they're a bad person because like he had the bad idea to like force this BlackBerry storm. He's just kind of desperate and trying to save his company. Does that make him a bad person? I don't know, but it makes him someone that was like willing to compromise his principles in order to save his company. And that's you know that's it led to their downfall. And I I, I think that's it's 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 not as simple as it's not as simple in a vacuum as him being greedy. Because if he doesn't save the company, a lot of people lose their jobs. Also, I guess it kind of it kind of, go, it kind of goes along with what I guess you're saying about the capitalism thing. Did, did you? Did, did, I think some people like might have thought that like uh, it kind of got off the reservation a little bit too much with respect to like uh, Balsilli trying to like get one over on the NHL. 
Did you think that was like a, a digression that was like necessary in the movie or because uh, that kind of speaks to like, I mean, it's just another example of greed within the movie. Or did you kind of appreciate that and seeing him like uh, kind of like just showing how disinterested he was in, in, in the actual business and how he almost saw it as a means to an end? Did, did he, do you think it served a, 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 an important enough purpose to warrant the screen time they had on him, like kind of going on these excursions to like the NHL Board of Commissioners? I think, first of all, because it actually happened, you'd be remiss. Yeah. Did not include it. It's too awesome a story. Yeah. This guy just trying to, trying buy to move him. the Pittsburgh Penguins. Is there like a big franchise? Yeah, he had the goal to try that. Move it to Waterloo. I mean, that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> you can't not show it, but did it deserve the screen time it got? I think so because it kind of expounds upon that guy's entire character. That to him, the the status and the wealth and you know his one seemingly only true interest is hockey. All, all the BlackBerry stuff is just a means to an end. It could have been anything. You know, the product didn't matter to him. It was about, you know, what can I buy? What can I have? Um, and that's like the key to his entire character. And, you know, part of the reason that he he falls so hard. Th that scene where he's freaking out on everyone in that. Is that the one you were referring to, Andrea? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I'll let Andrea speak on it in a moment because I know that she had some slight problem with that scene. To me, that is like one of the best scenes of the whole movie because he is completely unleashed, just yelling, completely <laughs> freaking out, uh, going full Dennis. Um, and there's also a great line where he says, uh, I'm from Waterloo, where the vampires hang out, which do you guys remember the video, the internet video that that quote is mm. referenced? It's this somewhat famous clip of uh, this girl, I, I think in Waterloo, she's she's doing man on the street interviews and oh. this crazy guy walks up to her and starts talking about vampires and he takes off his shirt and uh, you know, he's like, I have no body and you can't kill a man with no body. And then eventually he he ends the interview he ends the interview by saying, "I was in Waterloo, where the vampires hang out." <laughs> it's like a reference to this viral video from 15 years ago. Interesting. Well, Andrea, what, what about that scene? Did it work so much for you? Well, that's insane. First of all, I didn't <laughs> know that that was a reference to yeah. anything. Who would get that? Who's getting <laughs> that reference? I, I, I don't know. I'm baffled right now. I got it. So, I'll show you the video after this. Okay. Um. <laughs> So yeah, that I I'm gonna hard disagree with everything Gage just said. <laughs> I I don't think the NHL thing deserved any screen time, really. I, I guess I, I understand the point Gage is making about it it deepens the character of uh Ball Silly, but we already know that he's a greedy motherfucker. We already know that he doesn't care about the product and he's just a capitalist who like wants to get on top. Like we already know he's just an executive. So I don't think it was needed. Uh, I do think it was like a distraction from the from the story. And I did hate that scene. I don't hate is too strong a word. I disliked that scene where he yelled at the NHL commissioners precisely for what Gage just said. He went full Dennis specifically mm -hmm. in just just the line delivery, the very specific line delivery of that one quote. I'm from Waterloo where the vampires hang out. The way he said it was like so precisely Dennis that it mm -hmm. completely took me out of it. And you liked his performance a lot otherwise. I loved his performance otherwise. It was one of the strongest things that the film had going. I was so impressed by Glenn Howerton. Uh, I thought he 
was presenting himself as an asshole, but a completely different kind of asshole than Dennis Reynolds. Like I didn't see him as Dennis at all through the whole film. Mm. I thought I thought he was just so so strong, and I was I was genuinely like really bummed for when when that happened because I was like, man, he reverted to Dennis, and I was I was a little let down. Um, I do I, I do think it was I do think it was over the top, but in some ways, I guess to me in the moment, it underscored just like how that really was all he cared about at the end was like uh, using that, using the company to get to a point where he could just be a rich guy that could just like buy his own way, which is what most, most buy his own way for whatever he wanted, which most sports owners were. And when it, when it didn't happen, when he, when he, when he, when he wasn't quite in that class of person yet, it just, he, he, he lost it, which I thought was interesting, you know, or, 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 or just when he like, cause like there, there are examples of like sports owners, like just straight up moving franchises and on very unpopular moves, but they have the juice to get it done. And he clearly just wasn't that. Yeah. And I mean, that's true. I guess that's just historically true. I just felt, I I guess I felt it didn't, it was a distraction to me from the story. Um, I didn't think it needed to be there. So that's my opinion. What about the scene where he has the meeting with the NHL, but it's at the same time as the meeting that he's going to have with. That is the scene. I know. So you don't think, I mean, the fact that he prioritizes the NHL meeting, doesn't that like define his character he's doing it all he doesn't prioritize it he's doing it all <laughs> I, I think he like i think he thought he like ha- was able to get that done and like if, if he if he did maybe he would have i don't know because like he's trying to like i i, I guess i maybe didn't understand all the business that was going to go into like how much of a long shot just like tracking down the at&t ceo on a tarmac actually was like he was gonna have to spew him some line of bullshit whereas he just kind of felt like showing up to the nhl that was like a formality so, I mean, at the moment, like, I do think it speaks to like what he, how, how much more he valued the NHL thing that he went there in the first place. But at the same time, I, mean, I, I was reading that as like, yeah, like he's going to really have to just like get on his hands and knees if he goes talk to this AT&T guy. And it's like, it's up in the air regardless. Um, it, no, it's, I think it's just interesting watching the movie at that point and just like knowing how it ends. I mean, it's interesting that like, as soon as you see 2007 on the screen, it's like, oh, you know where they're jumping ahead to. And it's, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's like, it's, it's just watching a car wreck. Um, and though I didn't know the details of it, I suppose, like, I didn't know about, the, I, I actually did. I don't know if you guys knew going in, if, did you know that like SEC, like investigations was, was their ultimate downfall? Like I, I almost just thought they got like, you know, just like t- taken out of the market by Apple, but like, I didn't know there was that part of, well, I guess the, I guess the investigation didn't really do them in. It's, it's kind of more this, like the, the Blackberry storm being such a failure. seems like it did more than that. Cause they were able to, he was able to like just give ball silly over to the SEC. So I don't know. I, I just didn't know that part of the story. And I thought, I thought it was kind of interesting. And in some ways, I guess that almost implies that like, I mean, maybe like they, they give, they, they give him over to the sec and it's like, and then, and then he, it ends on him, like checking the blackberry storms. Right. And like the, them just being total disasters. And I guess we're like, I wonder maybe like if he doesn't like, compromise all of his principles on that and send it overseas and they just keep making some other version of the blackberry at like a and maybe like not bringing in as much revenue i wonder does does the company survive and i guess that, that that's something i also thought about it's like was there was there a world in which they didn't make as much money but they kept making a better product i'm not i'm not even sure but i i, I certainly thought about that yeah who knows you know maybe if they stuck to their guns and said you know we're we're going to be different than iphone you know, we're going to have the keyboard and we're not going to do touchscreen. You know, maybe they'd still be around or maybe iPhone was, you know, it was the great reckoning and nothing could have escaped. I mean, who yeah, knows? I, saw, I saw it with my friend Monique, who, like, you know, used to be in the military and then work, work government jobs after that for a bit. And like she said that, like, Blackberries were used in government for like a lot longer than other places because like the encryption was so heavy. 
And so like they were able to more securely use them. So it, they certainly had their uses if they just kept some level of a quality product. But like at the same time, like there are those, all those external pressures we already talked about. Like maybe it was just never meant to be if they, and they just didn't have the right innovation at the right time. And Apple did. And sometimes it's as simple as that, but at the same time, like that's where they ended up while making all those compromises and in pursuit of something else. And who knows if they had stayed true to themselves, maybe they, maybe they survive in some form though. Uh, it, it, it is interesting that like, you know, um, uh, Freegan got out at the right time. We learned at the end, he, he kind of like sold all this stock right before it happened in 2007. And he's, he's, he's a billionaire today. Whereas who knows what's going on with the other guys. So it was fitting that Balsilli like never went to jail. I'm like, God, that, 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 that's so frustrating when you see something end like that, but you're like, you know, I mean, it's a true story, but even if it hadn't been like, that's probably right. You know, that, that those guys will find a way out of it. Uh, did you guys have any other thoughts on um, like Jay Baruchel or uh, any of the other performances or anything like that? I, I enjoyed the presence of uh, Michael Ironside as the COO that gets brought in. That I, I got a real kick out of that performance and how for a second we're like conditioned to not like the guy, but then it turns out he might actually have more sense than a lot of them. Um, I liked, I thought Jay Baruchel was fine. Uh, like I said, I was very impressed with Glenn Howerton. Wish they'd mm-hmm. cut out that one line of dialogue about vampires and then I would have <laughs> but that's okay. Um, as I said, I, I find Matt Johnson just absolutely delightful on screen. Um, I did think it was hilarious. Like I Googled all the real people after watching this film and like mm-hmm. they, they go to efforts to like make Jay Baruchel look like his, the real person in real life. They, they go to efforts to make Glenn Howerton look like Jim Balsilli. Like he should like, uh, Glenn Howerton shaved his head for real, like that is not a bald cap in the film. Like he oh. shaved his head for real. Oh yeah, I had seen. I'd seen. A, I'd watch it here and there. A couple episodes of the always. It's always sunny podcast. It's yeah, like a yeah, video yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They show it like, on the podcast but, when but, he was. But, I think. What I think when I watched those, I because I earlier this year, like I caught up on the last three su- seasons of It's Always Sunny, or maybe the last four, and like I was like maybe I watched those before I was done with it. So I kept thinking, oh, maybe Dennis shaved his head at some point. I had no idea about this movie actually yeah. being a thing till like a month before I saw it. So I, I was just like, I was like, oh, I guess he may, maybe he really did do that. He did. Yeah. So he really shaved his head like they and and they both look really similar to mm-hmm. to real life people that they're portraying. Matt Johnson looks absolutely nothing like, <laughs> like what's his name? Is it Doug Freegan? Doug Freegan. Yeah. Doug Freegan. Nothing like him. That No <laughs> efforts made like he's just Matt Johnson on there with his little headband. I couldn't find a single photo of this man wearing a headband. So <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious that they didn't, they're like, nobody cares about the second or the third in command at Blackberry. We don't need to make him look anything like him. Just let Matt Johnson be a delight on screen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gage, any other final thoughts on whether it be the performances or anything else about the movie we didn't talk about yet? Uh, no, I, I, I thought it was a good movie. I love Matt Johnson. Great music by Jay McCarroll. He did the music also of Nirvana, the band, the show fame. And if this movie did well in theaters, which I don't think it did, (laughs) uh, Matt Johnson pretty much said as much that this whole movie, the only reason he made it was to try to get on the map and make more money so that he could bring back Nirvana, the band, the show. And I'm happy to report that there is now Nirvana, the band, the show, the movie. So we have that. And I heard him say in an interview, he kind of wanted to catch a to help other younger filmmakers in Canada get their films made. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, also, it looks like it only made two point five million dollars on a five million dollar budget that was uh, largely funded by like the Canadian film 
bureau or something like that. Like the Canadian has some Canada has some kind of entity that helps fund films. So they helped him with that, but hopefully they liked his product enough that they will like, you know, uh, you know, like let him like, you know, help other younger people get movies made. Cause the way he put it in the interview I listened to, like a lot of that money from the Canadian government was just going to like some old crusty filmmakers. I, I, I but I, I don't really know who that could be besides David Cronenberg, but you know, uh, it, it, it is what it is. But like, I mean, I, I certainly like, I, I really appreciated the movie and it, it kind of snuck up on me. I guess premiered at the Berlin Film Festival, which you know, sh- sure. Uh, but I, I, I just I didn't really know what it was till like a couple weeks before I saw it, and it was just such a it was such a pleasant surprise. I really enjoyed it. I don't have really any other any other thoughts on that one. Just like a again, like we talked about, like I I, I would just tell anyone that like somehow listened to all this because again, you can't really spoil a kind of something like this. So maybe someone listened and hadn't seen it, but it's probably going to be on. Uh, it's probably going to be streaming sooner rather than later. I would just say. Or actually, no, it's already streaming for six ninety nine, so you can watch it. I would just say, like, you know, don't let the fact that you feel like you've maybe seen other stuff like this already in the last couple of years dissuade you from watching it. It's, I think it does stand on its own from all those other uh, shows and movies we were referencing earlier. Like, I mean, again, I really like Air, but it, it, does, it definitely does something different than that. So, um, yeah, that, that's BlackBerry. Uh, Gage, before we get out of here, anything else you would like to plug to the listeners that you've been uh, watching recently? Uh, succession is over, so yeah. my life doesn't have mm. meaning anymore. Uh, no, I'm not really watching anything since that ended. I'm just kind of basking in the absence of it. Have you guys ever watched Industry? No, I've never been heard of it. Oh, okay. So like that's the one thing like, I kind of like, you know, refer people to if they like Succession. It's also on HBO. It's only been two eight episode seasons, so not a lot to catch up on. But it's like it's 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 like young people at a like a an investment bank in England trying to make it. Uh, so it's 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 kind of you know dealing with some like you know big money big money uh event events and transactions and stuff like that like succession except there's just probably like i don't know more sex and drugs you know so uh yeah it, it, it could scratch that itch for you if you were to give if you were to give it a shot uh andrew have you found something to fill whatever whole succession also might have left in your heart oh man well i've been watching uh euphoria which is about all the sex and drugs on TV. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> they don't need to put any more sex or drugs in that show that's what it is i'm not I don't watch Euphoria, but sometimes I'll come downstairs <laughs> while she's watching it. And I, I do think the show is best consumed as just a series of unrelated vignettes about who's <laughs> having sex with each other. I, I have no idea what this show is about, really. Uh, well, what, what, about. <laughs> what season are you on, Andrew? It's one or two. I'm on season two. I think I just watched episode four. So do you, you, you watch the holiday specials or the, or the, the, the two specials they did in between? No, I didn't oh. know. There was some. There's something between. They have, yeah. they have Christmas specials. No, I, I I guess I instinctively said holiday specials because they were one off. They're not holiday specials. Um, but no, like during COVID, because you know the, the 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 first season was obviously produced before the pandemic, and the second one like pr- mostly filmed, I guess in. Like sometime later in like in later like late 2020 early 2021, but they were like looking for other content to make, and there's an episode of like just Rue talking to her sponsor. And, and that's like the whole episode. So it's like easy. They, they're talking in a diner, basically. And that's the whole episode. And there's one where um, Jules like talks to her therapist for the whole episode. No, I didn't watch those. I should. I'll I have to track them down. Yeah. So the, the, they are set in between the events of the first and the second season, though. So, I mean, I think you, you'll you'll enjoy them fine, even though you've kind of watched ahead. But I'd be I, that's, I was curious. And I'm like, oh, wait, I wonder if she watched the therapy episode. Because I don't know if you've actually Uh-oh. seen. I don't think you see Jules with her therapist in season one, but there's literally a whole hour special they did because they were trying to think of things they could content they could put out that was easy to film during COVID. It's like, how about her talking to her therapist? How about her talking to her sponsors? Stuff like that. So yeah. Uh, okay. Something cool. else, something else for you to go back and up and, and, and check out at some point, maybe just do it after season two and um, go back and track where they were at the end of season one. 
Um, I have watched, I actually watched a lot in the last week because I was on vacation. I would say out of the stuff I've seen, uh, people go, go see past lives when it gets to a theater near you. Uh, the, the debut feature from Celine song. It's in a, it's a, I guess an, it's, it's an, it's an A24 movie about, you know, a, about, about a Korean American or Korean Canadian woman who has since, you know, moved to New York and, uh, she's married to a white guy played by John Magaro. The woman is played by Greta Lee. Uh, they are, you know, they're a seemingly happy, mar- happily married artistic couple in New York. They're actually both writers, uh, funny enough, given what we talked about today. And but then like a guy that she had a crush on when she was 12 and left Korea comes back into their lives. And uh, it kind of tracks the, the interaction she had with that guy, like, you know, at different points in her life up until when he actually comes back into their lives later on. And it's uh, really interesting and, you know, just makes you think about life. Uh, and then as far as a, a TV recommendation, I am uh, I'm I'm halfway through uh, season three of The Great. Which is uh, really fun. A show on Hulu, and yeah, we watched the first episodes of that. The first two, yeah, we fell off. Yeah, I mean, they are long episodes. I'll tell you that. Sometimes it's even even for a comedy, you know, it's sometimes hard to commit to a fifty-five minute comedy, uh, and that's what most of those episodes are. But it's it's delightful. Nicholas Holt and Elle Fanning are both a lot of fun. So uh, watch the great on Hulu, people. If you're just if, if you're going to laugh at some stuff and you like stuff that kind of is historical but not exactly you know one hundred percent accurate. Um, Gage, anything you want to plug social media wise, Letterboxd or anything like that? Uh, Gage9598 on Letterboxd. Andrea, any uh, you want to direct people to your Letterboxd? I am Amdia on Letterboxd. That's A-M-D-E-A. There you go. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Josh Renovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. Also there on Twitter, though, at the rate I'm going with my Letterboxd reviews, you might not even see a review for uh, BlackBerry for another month because I'm just like way behind. But, you know, always appreciate that. Podcast Twitter is at Real Movie Pod. Podcast uh, email is realmoviepod at gmail.com. Coming up next on the podcast, we're probably going to have an episode on uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which, oh, that's another recommendation. That movie rules. Uh, watch that. And, and, uh, and, but, and Little Mermaid at the same time because uh, our friends Joe and Maya are going to join us for that given that they are kind of like Marvel Disney correspondents uh, all the same. So uh, thanks again to Gage and Andrea for joining me. Uh, Thanks to all of you for listening and we'll see you next time.